G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day folks and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. What are we listening to today, Tim? Today we're going to take another look at the trees in the Garden of Eden and specifically the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here's our text for today. Genesis chapter 2 verses 16 to 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, Chris, it's been a while since we mentioned your book of short stories and entertaining poems that you wrote, which is called Beautiful Nonsense. And... I loved that short story called The Idiom Preservation Society. By the end of this episode, I think everybody is going to be wishing that the Idiom Preservation Society was a real thing because if we had someone helping us to make sense of ancient Near Eastern idioms, I'm sure it would be a lot easier to read the Bible. Well, thank you very much. Um, beautiful nonsense. Also available on Amazon, like your wonderful book, although... Uh, not as thick and not as serious, but um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> totally agree about idioms. Understanding is key. Yes, yes. You know, I was thinking, Chris, one thing we don't often think about when we consider the Garden of Eden is that the man is a guest. Now, as we talked about last week, the man's not invited or asked or even told to enter the garden. God just put him there. Nevertheless, this is not the man's house. This is God's house. So God presents his hospitality to the man as a guest in his home. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever been to somebody's house and they want to treat you as an honoured guest, then you'll be familiar with the situation. You get welcomed at the door. Hi, come on in, take a seat. I'll bring you something to drink. And they put you in the good lounge room on the nice furniture and they bring you a cold glass of water and then they say, I'll get you something to eat, anything you want. And that is the position in which this man finds himself as a guest in God's house. But then it goes on, because if you have a responsible host, they'll warn you about the dangers that exist in the house. Yeah, don't eat that chili, it's hot. When you're welcomed into someone's house, they don't explain to you all of the good things that are in the house. They don't show you every treasure they own, and they don't offer you every good thing in the cupboard. But for your own sake, for your own benefit, they'll warn you about what you should stay away from, and then perhaps in time, you'll be around long enough to see more of those good things later on. So God does not introduce the man to the tree of life. Instead, he gets the general introduction to the garden and its trees and one warning in the form of a commandment. The scriptures make it clear that angels had a role in the administration of God's word to mankind. So it's clear that part of the role of divine beings was the instruction of humanity from the beginning. If we look at the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 53, I mentioned this before, this was from the speech that Stephen gave before he was martyred. Uh, he says, You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And then we have in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels 
by an intermediary. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. I mentioned this in my book too, but this goes some way toward explaining why Paul would be worried about an angel preaching a different gospel to what he preached in Galatians 1 verse 8. And speaking of my book, Answers to Giant Questions, here is a short excerpt from chapter 3. Just one paragraph here. The teaching ministry of angels is, according to the Second Temple Period text, Jubilees, a precursor to the fall of some of the sons of God because they went too far and taught forbidden things beyond their mandate to instruct men in righteousness. The result of this teaching was the use of the arts of cosmetics and seduction to tempt the sons of God to fall into sexual sin with human women. Later, the fallen angels continued to teach illicit arts, including warfare and weaponry. The effect of this exposition on First Enoch, because the Book of Jubilees serves as a kind of ancient commentary on Genesis and the Book of the Watchers, was to place primary responsibility for the angelic fall on Azazel, the chief teacher, over and above that of Semihaza, the one who taught warfare and weaponry. However, the biblical text in Genesis 6 gives no explicit chronology of the various sins of the Watchers, nor does it name the individuals, preferring instead to conflate the angelic fall into a single event with shared blame. And that's the end of the quote. As we've seen already, divine beings can be spoken of in Scripture using the language of trees, which is why I mention it, and their fruit is what they provide for mankind. So when God says to the man, you may eat from the trees, we could understand that as the freedom to receive guidance from these entities who formed the original divine council of God. But we must remember that in the centre of the garden we have the two most important trees. The tree of life, which I mentioned before as being the life-sustaining presence of God, and the tree of knowledge, which we're looking at today. And these two must remain in view the whole time as we go through this story. Whatever happens, we always come back to that centre. Now, the idea of trees as divine beings in the Garden of Eden raises the question, is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil a divine being? And if so, who is it? But I think that's missing the point, because the focus here is on the verb, the act of eating. And eating, in the ancient worldview, is to take something and make it part of yourself, to assimilate that thing and make it part of who you are, to make that thing submit to yourself and serve your purpose. This is why, later on, we learn to fear Nimrod, because he is the hunter who takes and assimilates whatever he finds. The fact is that we never get told which entity, if any, ought to be identified with this particular tree, and there's a reason for that. The reason is that you're supposed to go to God for everything you need. But didn't you say that God told the man that he was free to eat from any of the trees except for this one, and now you're saying that the man should go to God only? Yeah, let me just clarify that point. What I mean is that God said, yeah, it's fine to go and eat from all these other trees, but the one that he prohibits specifically is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we're going to need to understand that phrase really well in order to understand exactly what is being prohibited here. And once we get a clear picture of what God has taken off the table, it's going to become apparent as to why I'm saying that Yahweh is to be the only source of what this tree provides. So what exactly then are we talking about when we 
say the knowledge of good and evil. It's a common phrase. We've heard it many times, but what do we mean when we say the knowledge of good and evil? All right, now we're talking. That's a great question to ask, and I say that because there are too few people asking that question. This phrase is actually one of those ancient Near Eastern idioms. When I was growing up, I always thought that it was just a clear-cut choice that you make. Like, you don't know what it is to do the wrong thing until you've done it. So if God says don't do it and then you do it, well, now you know the difference because you've introduced disobedience or evil into the world, so you've had that experience and now you know. But it turns out it's actually a lot more complicated than that. It turns out that there's a bit of a theme running through the scriptures that helps us to understand what this phrase means. So we're going to have a look at some examples, get a bit of a feel for the text here. Fire away, Chris. Okay, let's dive into Deuteronomy uh, 1, verse 39. Your children, whom you said would be plunder, your sons who don't yet know good from evil will enter there. I will give them the land and they will take possession of it. Yeah, and I've got another one here from 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. Lord, my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place, yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people you have chosen, a people too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And that, of course, was King Solomon. I've got Ecclesiastes here, 12, verse 10 to verse 14. The teacher, capital T, sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd, but beyond these, my son, be warned, there is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this, Fear God and keep his commands, because this is all for humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 12, And at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and punish those who settle down comfortably, who say to themselves, The Lord will not do good or evil. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 to verse 45. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And another one from Matthew. This is chapter 22, verse 10. So those servants went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And Hebrews 5 verse 14 But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. So those are examples of passages that use terminology like good and evil, but we're only looking at the English. In fact, if we go to the original languages, we'll find that sometimes our translation says things like good and bad instead of good and evil. So that gives us another range of scriptures that we can look at, which will help us to nail down the sense that the author is trying to give us in Genesis 2. So Genesis 31 verse 24, But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night. Watch yourself, God warned him. Don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Leviticus 27 verse 10, He may not replace it or make a substitution for it, 
either good for bad or bad for good. But if he does substitute one animal for another, both that animal and its substitute will be holy. Also from Leviticus 27, this is verse 33. He is not to inspect whether it is good or bad, and he is not to make a substitution for it. But if he does make a substitution, both the animal and a substitute will be holy. They cannot be redeemed. Numbers 13, verse 19. Is the land they live in good or bad? Are the cities they live in encampments or fortifications? Also in Numbers, uh, chapter 24, verse 13. If Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go against the Lord's command to do anything good or bad of my own will. I will say whatever the Lord says. And in Second Samuel, chapter 13, verse 22. Absalom didn't say anything to Amnon, either good or bad, because he hated Amnon since he disgraced his sister Tamar. Also from 2 Samuel, uh, this is chapter 14, verse 17. Your servant thought, may the word of my lord the king bring relief, for my lord the king is able to discern the good and the bad, like the angel of God. May the Lord your God be with you. Mm, the angel of God, that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, Ecclesiastes 9 verse 2 Everything is the same for everyone There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked For the good and the bad For the clean and the unclean For the one who sacrifices and the one who does not sacrifice As it is for the good So also it is for the sinner As it is for the one who takes an oath So also for the one who fears an oath Isaiah seven fifteen to 16 By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he'll be eating curds and honey. But before the boy knows to reject what is bad and chooses what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. And Isaiah 41, verse 23, Tell us the coming events. Then we will know that you are gods. Indeed, do something, good or bad. Then we will be in awe when we see it. So... What we should be noticing here is that in some of these passages, the phrase good and bad or good and evil, whichever you prefer, is used to describe a range or a spectrum that is covered from one side to the other. Like we sometimes uh, say from A to Z or A to Z, um, and that would have meant the same thing. Exactly. And there's another thing that comes through quite clearly in many of these texts, which talks about maturity or a certain age at which a person should have a degree of discernment. We need to be aware that the word knowledge, as it is used here, implies a very thorough familiarity with the subject matter. And that's a careful word choice, because if I say to know something intimately, the conclusion that we jump to in our cultural frame of reference is this must be a sexual kind of knowledge, because that's the context in which we talk about intimacy in our culture. So getting back to a correct interpretive framework for this, we're talking about the kind of knowledge that comes from a very deep and thorough awareness of something rather than a casual acquaintance with the subject matter. I'm not going to go back over all that serpent seed doctrine that I covered last season. If you want to hear that, go back and listen to the last half a dozen episodes of season one, and you'll see in some depth why it is completely incoherent to insist that knowledge in this context is a sexual reference. Look at all those texts that we just read from one end of the Bible to the other. Not one of them is a sexual reference. Taking all these concepts together, 
gives us the impression that the knowledge of good and evil is a way of saying a very broad and very deep form of knowledge that would normally be reserved for the wise and mature individual. The tree of knowledge functions as an incentive. Basically, the way it works is if the man does the right thing, in time he may have access to this tree. For now, it is off limits, strictly verboten, forbidden, and not intended for his use. The idea of forbidden knowledge has always had a kind of appeal, and it's not hard to see why. Because the very first thing that we think when we are told that we can't have it now is, well, how can I get it now? And there's the trap. We as a species are absolutely obsessed with what we cannot have. God's first words to the man were to tell him all the wonderful things that were at his disposal. And yet the only thing that seemed to have the man's attention, as we find out later in the narrative, is the one thing that he couldn't have. None of us are any different, and that is precisely why the man has not yet been named in this text, because as I've said in previous episodes, once you put a name on the man, you can say, well, that's him, and it's not me, and I'm not like that, and I'm better than that, and I wouldn't do that. We're lying to ourselves. So have we gotten closer to understanding exactly what this idiom means? I'm going to suggest that the knowledge of good and evil is supposed to be interpreted as the power to pass judgment and to decide what is good or bad for yourself. And the problem is that you can take the authority to do something without having earned what it takes to be able to execute that function correctly. Putting yourself in the judge's seat is easier than a lifetime of learning wisdom and accepting instruction and learning from mistakes. But if you do that, you're going to be a terrible judge. The other trees in the garden offered things that were good for the man right now, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or we might say the tree of judgment, bears a fruit best left to the mature. Perhaps we can start to appreciate why it was a problem for the man and his wife to partake of this fruit when they did. But if you want to understand later in this story why the judgment of God is so severe for this transgression, and that's exactly what it is, it's a transgression, then you need to understand now that I was setting you up at the start of this story, inviting you in like a guest in a friend's house when really you were walking into a courtroom. You were walking into the chambers of the divine council because the Garden of Eden was the place where God held judgment. You don't take that lightly. You don't stroll in, raid the fridge, put your feet on the seats, and you certainly don't presume to be a judge in God's house. So the trouble we have with the man here is that he got familiar in God's house. He got comfortable and got casual, and he forgot that this is God's house. And the proper etiquette in God's house is to wait until something is offered to you before you take it. The power to make your own judgment is what this tree represents, but it does not represent the authority to wield that power. This is so much deeper than simply understanding the difference between doing something that is right and doing something that is wrong. It is so much more than freedom of choice, which the man already had before he made the decision to eat. This is one aspect of divine glory that could have been given to the man in due course, but instead turned out to his shame. And yet the glory of being able to sit in judgment will be ours in the future. That's why the Apostle Paul says, don't you know that we will judge angels? We are going to sit in judgment, but it's not going to be on your own terms, and it certainly isn't going to be in this life. Until then, we need to be content to return to the centre of the garden and let God be the judge. And this is the whole point of this narrative. Only God is fit to judge. Only God can handle the ability to decide his own fate without becoming corrupt. 
When God charges the man with the commandment, leaving him with the responsibility to run things on his own for just a moment, and that's the sense we get from this text, like God's just stepping out for a moment. The man feels the weight of destiny for the first time. He's not facing it alone. Awesome. Giving us a lot to chew on, as you always do, Tim, but we're going to leave it there because it is time to get answers to your giant questions. Uh, any final thoughts, though, before we go there, Tim? Yeah, well, I guess the main thing that we can take away from this story is that the true source of everything we need is God, and he's always right there at the centre. Ultimately, it's his presence and it's his very being that provides for all our needs and sustains us. And I say that because... I'm seeing so much desire out there in the fringe community, you know. And if you're listening to this, you're part of that community. There's just so much hunger for understanding and for knowledge and for the power that comes with knowledge. But it's often so misguided. Every day I find people asking, where can I get copies of the pseudepigrapha? Where can I find the apocrypha? How can I get hold of Gnostic texts and extra-biblical sources? What about Zechariah Sitchin or Eric von Daniken and all that ancient alien stuff? And I'm just blown away at the lack of interest in spending time working on understanding the scriptures. People seem to think that the five minutes they spent on a Sunday school story when they were a child was enough to have mastered biblical doctrine, and now they've got that under their belt. They're diving into the occult and mysticism and science fiction to satisfy their spiritual hunger. Let me make this clear. We are not in Eden anymore, and the voices of the trees of Eden still speak to us today, but they are no longer working in our best interest. They haven't been for a very long time, and Ezekiel 31 is proof of that fact. Really, that ended after Genesis 3. So what we need to do as believers, allegiant to Jesus Christ, is to keep him at the center and keep returning to his word to satisfy our needs, because there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. I really can't stress this enough. You have to pick up your Bible and read it regularly, and don't just stick to one translation. YouTube is not Bible reading. Anyway, that's enough of that. Let's have some fun. Well said, as always, and we've got an interesting question today, as we always do. All right, let's do it. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Well, today's question comes from Tamara Wignall, who sent us a question via the website, giantanswers.com. And don't forget, anyone can send us a question, and that's how you do it. Go to giantanswers.com, and right there on the homepage, you can submit your own giant questions. So tomorrow, asked, I've read somewhere that Abraham was a giant. Is that true? Well, that's a great question, and it's really good to finally get some questions about giants on the show, because most of the stuff people have asked about has been stuff related to the primeval history, which we're already on track to study anyway. It's nice to get out of there and have a look at some other stuff. So Abraham, he's a very interesting guy. And at first, when I got this question, I thought, man, I'm sure I've seen something about Abraham somewhere, but I've got to look this up. So I went through all my books and records, all my source material, I went all over the place looking for stuff about Abraham. It turns out there's not really anything that says that Abraham was a giant. There are some other biblical heroes that get turned into giants in other material outside the Bible, but not Abraham. As an example... Moses, according to one rabbinic tradition, 
It's in the Talmud. Moses is described as being 10 cubits tall. This is when he's having that battle against King Og of Bashan. Keep in mind, this is medieval period stuff, so it's all really exaggerated. And like they want Moses to be this huge, fearsome warrior, you know, so they tell us Moses is 10 cubits tall. And all this, you know, he's, he's, he's got bigger in the time since the story was actually recorded in scripture. But, you know, this is coming from the rabbis and they've got some pretty crazy stories and they actually have an explanation for Moses' height that was nothing to do with being some big, scary warrior. But naturally, of course, for the rabbis, it's got to be something to do with religious observances. So the Gemara relates an Agardic teaching in the name of Rav. It said Rav, our, Moses, our teacher, was ten cubits in height. For it is said, and he spread abroad the tent over the tabernacle, which is a reference to Shemot 40, verse 19. Shemot is Exodus in English Bibles. Now, who spread it? Moses, our teacher. And scripture says, ten cubits shall be the length of the board. Which is Shemot 26, 16. Again, Exodus 26, 16. To which Rav Shimi Bahiyah replied, If so, you have made out that Moses was a blemished person. For we have learnt in the Mishnah, one whose body is unduly large for his limbs, or unduly small for his limbs. Rav recognised that Rav Shimi had misunderstood his teaching and responded, I refer to the cubit of the tabernacle. Rav Shimi had originally thought that Rav meant to say that Moses had an ordinary body and that his arm was ten times the length of his own arm. Because the word amar, which is translated both as cubit and as arm. This led him to ask how Moses, who had served in the role of high priest during the week of the consecration of the tabernacle could have done so if he suffered from a bodily abnormality. Rav then explained that he meant that Moses was a physically imposing person and that he was so tall that his limbs were extraordinarily long but in proportion with his body. So there you go now you understand why Moses had to be 10 cubits tall because he needed to be 10 cubits tall in order to hang a curtain on the tabernacle with his enormous arms. Uh, I bet he's very good at basketball and a pretty interesting uh, looking fella as well. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, apparently he had horns too. Wow, where, where did where did that come from? Oh yeah, that was uh, Saint Jerome trying to translate the Bible from Hebrew into Latin, and he got a little bit muddled up. So, you know the bit where Moses comes down the mountain after he spent time with God, and his face is all radiant, and there's these rays of light coming from his face. Uh, Jerome translated those rays of light as being horns growing out the top of his head. <laughs> Okay, so Moses had to be a giant because there were no ladders in the wilderness, right? Yeah, apparently you can build tabernacles, but you can't build ladders. But they're very difficult. Um, And God didn't tell Moses to build a ladder, I guess. Fair point. You're not going to think about Moses the same way ever again, though, are you? Definitely not. The old Og of Bashan is the size of a mountain, according to this tradition. So Moses gets his staff that he carries with him, which is also 10 cubits tall. And he uses it to propel himself 10 cubits high in the air. There's a bit of a theme going here. And he slashes at King Og of Bashan and only gets him in the ankle because he's so huge, he's a mountain, but it's enough to topple King Og and make him fall. And fall so hard, he smashes into the ground and his teeth get embedded into the ground and he can't get up and he dies there. Sounds pretty painful. So there were no ladders and uh, no dentist in Moab, I guess. <laughs> you get some really... F- fantastic medieval period stories about biblical heroes and 
I think that might go some way towards explaining why in the Masoretic text of the Bible, Goliath is bigger than he is in the other traditions, right? Because if you read in the Hebrew Dead Sea Scrolls or the Septuagint, which of course was written in Greek, they both agree that Goliath was four cubits in a span or six foot nine. And then you get this much later text, which is the Masoretic text, which we don't have any other supporting evidence for, claiming that Goliath was actually six cubits in a span or nine feet nine. And as I say there, there's really nothing to back that up, so we need to tread carefully with that one. But I should add that we do have another giant recorded in Scripture at five cubits, and this guy's an Egyptian, so that might even be Egyptian cubits in that case. So that guy could be as tall as a bit over eight and a half feet tall. That's First uh, Chronicles 11.23, if you want to look it up. But Yeah, there's definitely some big guys, but it seems to be the usual thing that they get bigger over time, you know, the, the old fisherman's tail. The, the classic example is reading First Enoch, where the giants before the flood are said to be 3,000 L's in height, and one, one L is supposed to be, I think, the equivalent to a cubit. Uh, so a foot and a half, just a different name for it. So some versions have 3,000 cubits or about 4,500 feet tall. I noticed that other translations of First Enoch bring that down to like 10% of that. They're saying 300 L's or 300 cubits, depending on your translation. So again, that's still 450 feet tall. And again, it's a late manuscript, okay, because First Enoch is like 3rd to 2nd century BC, so it seems the later you go in history, the more exaggerated the stories get. And that's why I'm always going to be sticking with the Bible, because, you know, that's where you get your original source material. That's where you're getting the closest to the actual stuff that really happened. But anyway, getting back to Abraham, as I say, I don't find any traditions that tell us that Abraham was a giant. But he still has a very interesting story, because in Genesis 14, we find out that he was involved, or got himself involved in a battle between nine kings, some of whom, well, at least some, we can use the word giants for, related to the giant clans, and some of whom definitely have their own encounters with giants as we're introduced to this battle. This is actually the first time we come across the Rephaim in scripture. So you've got these competing giant clans fighting over what appears to be taxation of the region in dispute, and as the battle progresses, Abraham's nephew Lot gets caught up in the mess because he lives in one of the towns in dispute, so Abraham has to come and save him. So you've got whole tribes or clans of these giants and their armies fighting one another. Nine different groups, and that doesn't count the giants that were slain on the way into battle. It's a brutal slaughter. There are some interesting details in the battle. And then Abraham comes along with a little over 300 men, and in spite of that, manages to defeat all of them and get his nephew back. So, I mean, never mind all the exaggerations of the later rabbinic material and stuff in the Second Temple period and all the rest. I mean, Abraham was pretty hardcore without blowing him up. Goliath was intimidating enough at six foot nine, given that the average Israelite was five foot three, but Abraham doesn't need to be exaggerated. He goes out there with this small troop of men and he absolutely dominates a bunch of giant killers. I mean, you know, he's a badass. Anyway, that was a fun little excursion into some scriptures and some mythology, and it's really fun to talk about giants. So thanks for that question because I had a really good time. I hope you did too. That hopefully answers the question and ends today's episode. And I'm looking forward to more of your questions next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. 
in the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. That's not eggnog, is it? No, you know, you know you can't get that now. Would you contemplate making your own? But uh, I do make my own. I love it. Oh yeah. Mm. You can put my alcohol in it that way. Oh well, I don't put alcohol, but um, no, I well, I actually make a non-traditional version, um, which is just a, a recipe I got from my dad. Okay. And um. You know, it's got some of the flavour, but it's not thick. Like eggnog is quite thick. You know, it's almost like drinking custard, isn't it? But yeah, um, the the one that I make is just sort of the, pretty much the consistency of regular milk. It's not. Um, yeah, I don't go to the trouble of like cooking it. Like you're supposed to actually. Oh really? Uh, yeah, there's oh. cooking involved to make eggnog, and I can't be bothered. So um, I just get some eggs yep. and whisk those up and um, I add some vanilla essence and a little sugar and nutmeg and cinnamon and ground cloves, uh, just in tiny, tiny bits. You really don't need much, and then yeah, just milk, and that's it. Nice. Whisk it all up, and uh, yeah, it's really delicious, and doesn't take long to make. So yeah, that's what I like. Um, and I just like yeah. looking at your sweaty, muscly body. <laughs> oh, I thought you meant my bookshelf. Yeah, I like that. Like mm. a midget covered in honey.